I'm going to start with this. While I was researching for this interview with Terry Ann White, West Australian publisher of Upswell, I was digging through my Gmail and I came across this draft of mine from 2015. I clearly thought I was onto something because I had emailed this section of the review to myself just to make sure I didn't lose it. So against my better judgment, I'm going to read this little bit of just sparkling copy to you. Here's how I'm going to start out. Here's my, my big review for Cordite. Here's how I'm starting it. Flexible and porous as the term may be, what we loosely refer to as, quote, the Australian poetry scene, unquote, is in rude health. I have rude health in square brackets because I don't like that term, but I don't know what else to say. Still, need to back it up. There's good stuff here. I continue. The number of established and fledgling journals, online and print, make a fairly convincing case, fairly, fairly convincing, make a fairly convincing case that the Australian poetry scene is overgrown and in need of some ruthless weeding and pruning. Got that? Yep, that's how I'm starting. What the hell am I doing? This is a crazy way to start a review. Um, and, and also I just, I just don't know what I mean. I don't know what, what, why I'm trying to make this case. And I reread this the other day and I thought I was wrong then, but I'm even more wrong now. I think we have a scenario at the moment and I could be wrong about this. I'm very happy to be wrong. Um, I would like to be wrong. But I, I think the impression I get is that we actually don't have as many of those established or fledgling journals, especially the fledgling ones, especially the little magazines, the one to three issues, people publishing their friends and a couple of other people. I feel like they're kind of missing at the moment. They've gone a bit quiet. Not saying they don't exist at all, but... I don't know, I, I've got a couple of poems that I'd love to send somewhere that are not, like, you know, to be perfectly frank, like, I can't send them to Overland. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's, uh, yeah. So we're, we're missing that undergrowth, I think, that I so um, stridently wanted to weed and prune back in 2015 when I was 33 years old and knew everything. And I was thinking about this and I was like, probably the reason for that, if this is, if this really is the case, that we're missing some of these journals now at the moment, is that this stuff takes energy. It takes energy to put up a website, put out the call for submissions, deal with all those submissions, edit the thing, publish it, distribute it, pay the writers. That's that's a big process. It all sounds very delightful and fun over uh, half a bottle of red around your kitchen table with your friends. But then you wake up the next day and you go, I'm not going to start a poetry journal. That's insane. I don't have the energy. The last couple of years have been horrible. What I would like to do instead is to catch up on Selling Sunset. And I actually think 
that's that's a totally reasonable approach to take it does take energy we don't all have energy we probably have less energy at the moment than we did in 2015 let's be honest i bring all this up i bring up this whole energy thing and the time and the money because my guest today is somebody who has found the energy many many times over to keep the whole publishing thing going my guest is terry ann white she runs west australian publishing house upswell she launched it a couple of years ago after uwap folded where she had worked for quite a number of years and she fit me in to have this zoom call in a week where she was going to i think she said brisbane sydney adelaide not melbourne because otherwise we would have done this in person but i think there was one other city and if you're listening overseas terry ann lives in perth in western australia the thing about australia is to get to perth it's about three hours it's also like a big big chunk of money and there's a time difference so this is no small thing i've wanted to talk to terry ann for quite a while because i talk to poets all the time but i only rarely get to talk to publishers and because i know that a lot of people who listen are poets and are poets in australia i want to tell the other side of the story i think it's good to understand the pressures that publishers are under um, i think too often editors and publishers are set up as the bad guy because they are the people saying no to 95 percent of what they get but i think if we understand the constraints that they're working within we can use that information to make better decisions maybe that decision is you wake up the next day after the half bottle of bread and you go you know what i will make that magazine I'm not making a magazine. Oh my God, stop asking me if I'm making a magazine. I'm not. So that's why I really wanted to bring Terry Ann onto the show. Before we get into it, I just want to read this little section from her website. The Upspell website has a whole bunch of information about the submissions process. Terry Ann's had a couple of iterations of accepting submissions. And at one point, she had a number of what she called pitch sessions throughout the year. And I just want to read this little paragraph that she put up on 31st of January this year. All of my utopian ideas about monthly and then quarterly pitch sessions have crashed against the rocks. And I realize I can only manage this exercise once a year. I am still a one person band at Upswell. My eyesight is fading and my brain overheated just thinking about this. And then she goes on to say when the pitch session is or was it was on the 24th of March. I didn't know. That's okay. I'm in no danger of having a manuscript anytime soon. I think my favorite thing that Terry Ann said in all this was, please, even against the odds, think about this as a long-term prospect. I know I didn't do that for ages. I'm only just starting to get comfortable with that idea. And yeah, I appreciate the reminder. I'll be back at the end with a few more uh, ill-advised hot takes. Until then, please enjoy this conversation with Terry Ann White. Hi, 
I opened up the Upswell website and the first sentence on the website is, we publish writers who need to be read. I'm wondering if you can unpack for us what that means in terms of poetry in particular. Okay. Well, it's really nice to be here. And um, I I will focus on on the poetry, although it, it, it does absolutely apply across all of the books that I'm interested in. Um, the needing to be read, uh, for me, I, I'm, I'm in an awkward um, period of my life where I'm seeing um, a kind of turn to escapism and I absolutely understand what escapism uh, is all about because things are, you know, the, everything's in a terrible state of disarray and just very concerning for the imagination to think about where we are. So I, I really understand the, the the turn to escapism that, that has intensified over, I'd say, the last five years. You know, it's been intensifying across time, but the last five years we've had a lot to to uh, to think about and uh, or to av avoid thinking about. And so film, television and now literature uh, in, the, in the form of, of books and reading ha has taken this turn that I understand but but I'm very dismayed by. Bookshops are filled with um, a very standard set of uh, novels, mostly novels and uh, memoir. A lot uh, of memoir, so much memoir. And you know, poetry has never really been up the front in that in that respect. Uh, probably not since Rod McEwen. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I just you know I am deeply concerned about about what happens, you know, across time and that sense of how we mark out periods of our lives when um, discovery is more possible. Right. Uh, so it's it's that thing of like, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's that thing of when I think back to 2021, I can think of some um, – events that happened but mostly I have a list of films that I watched and those kind of tell me a story about what I was doing with my time I mean I always keep a list of films but some years the list is longer and more desperate seeming than other years you know and even just like more locally like on a on a on a more local time scale like the um the intensity of focus on a show like Succession or Game of Thrones or whatever. It's just like, that's the thing. Everybody watch it and talk about it and don't think about anything else. I've I've always um, been a bit allergic to that global kind of drive to, to one product. Um, I'm steely in my uh, kind of looking the other way. Uh, but, you know, th that kind of escapism in film, that, that, and and you know succession is probably uh in the same uh in in the same realm because it's it's always kind of pitching itself up really high and the way that those people talk to each other is so banal <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I, I think well, why don't you make more 
of your lives. You know, it, <laughs> it always seems so boring. I think the, the kind of nitpicking that they do. and, and they, they <laughs> That's the whole stuff. point. The whole point of the show is they nitpick each other to death. Um, they can't even get a good sentence. We no. can't get a good sentence out of it. It's kind of very, yeah, incredibly banal. Um, so I do. Funny. I mean, I'll watch it and I'll probably watch it after I've had this conversation with you. <laughs> I, I also need to catch up. <laughs> Maybe we're getting, we can't go down the succession road because we were just talking about it. But uh, you know, I'm I'm really interested in the way that uh, that particular periods of time kind of carry the 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 brilliant writing that came out of that time. But I also always want to carry with me the things that um, that you know last for because I think the next sentence in my blurb on my on my website is about books lasting for, you know, 50 or 100 years in the cultural imagination. And I just wanted to tell you one little um, story from my from my life. When I, when I was about 20, I got a part-time job in a bookshop while I was still studying. And then when I was 23, I audaciously opened my own bookshop uh, just because I could. And I only stocked books that I love, which is exactly what I'm doing now. I'm only publishing books that I love. Uh, and I I didn't have very many customers for the first year or so, and it it coincided with uh, this kind of astonishing thing that was happening in the UK, where Virago Press and Women's Press were beginning to um, retrieve r- women writers from the 19- late nineteenth century through the twentieth century who had either been in print and gone out of print never been published or been just, you know, willfully forgotten. And so I I lay on my um, bookshop uh, floor a lot because I didn't have very many customers. (laughs) And I I read through these uh, revelations of what, you know, not in my lifetime but uh, just before uh, had been happening that weren't ever any part of my uh, education or even in, you know, particularly my um, my social group or my, you know, uh, people who shared the same interests as me knew about. Mm. So I just, that was um, kind of life-changing for me, I think, at 23 to uh, to to find this this way in to thinking about uh how how writing you know across fashion across uh uh peri- you know various historical periods could do things for for me and other readers you know way after or in in real time I'm really glad you told the story about the bookshop because I wanted to mention that too. You worked in it for 14 years. It seems to me you're holding a couple of different things in tension, literary history and mm-hmm. the market. Yeah. And you're kind of working, um, yeah, with, with that tension and you're you're really aware of it. You know, you are, maybe this isn't a completely rare thing, but you're a publisher that knows what happens in the bookshop. What do you want to tell poets about that? I want to tell them that um, 
to not despair and I <laughs> that Great. I despair when I go into many contemporary bookshops because that front wall of new releases has increased in, you know, I'd say in the last five to ten years and it has become uh, incredibly homogenous. Is a there's just a huge amount of similar, you know, even the books look the same. They have, uh, they often have foils. They have a very similar kind of cover design. Many of them have on each corner a one or two word um, endorsement by someone who's more more famous than the, the writer. Spectacular or inspiring. Brilliant. A brilliant debut. <laughs> Yeah, and it's only two words. I mean, it's very rarely more than two. And uh, that's why I don't have any endorsements on my covers and don't intend to because uh, they've been devalued so profoundly, I think, in, you know, I'm not that interested in in whether, you know, some hotshot claims they like this book. You know, that never does anything for me as a reader. So, um you know, I'm kind of sticking with that as, you know, I'm, I'm making myself the common woman who, who, who doesn't really give a shit. No, uh, I mean, no. I, I read this book. I got a book out of the library the other day that I'd been wanting to read for ages. Read the first chapter. It was terrible. And then I looked at the endorsements and I'm looking at the names of the people who are giving these endorsements and I'm like, are we talking about the same book? Anyway, it's just so hard to, yeah, they're totally devalued, exactly as you say. So, so back to the poet entering a bookshop or thinking about what happens when her book is uh, is published. You asked me for a message to them. My message to them is do not despair, but also please, uh, even against the odds, think about this as a long-term prospect because there is such a short-termism in our in our world uh and in our world of books that you know that everybody knows that if a book doesn't sell well in in its first eight weeks it's you know it's uh, destined for the tip and that is not you know that's not the way i'm operating it's not uh it's it's not sustainable especially when you know there is this increase in um in new releases we're publishing far too much we're usually publishing far too early. You know, the books need to kind of sit, <laughs> I think. You know, I, I do like this idea of slow publishing, that that you get the best book that you can rather than getting the book that is, you know, on point uh, trend-wise. So, yeah, that's where I, that's where I sit. I, I don't go into very many bookshops because I'm prone to get, Kind of cranky. Uh, I'm old enough to be a, you know, potentially a cranky old woman, and I don't. And I, it's not a good look to to complain to other booksellers. Well, a couple of things on that. Um, I think being a cranky old woman might be the best best thing you can be. <laughs> but I do go into a lot of bookshops. I go into like at least two a week, and what I've noticed is. Poetry is creeping closer and closer to the front. Uh, probably three or four of the bookshops in Melbourne at the moment have Eve Evelyn Araluen's drop bear in the in the window. 
Um, Sarah Hollenbatt's Jaguar is probably going to sit there too. I mean, obviously that's because of the stellar win, but like I remember going to Glee Books a couple of years ago and there was, I wish I could remember what poetry collection it was, but it was some, it wasn't Milk and Honey. It was some other poetry collection that was like sitting there next to the register. And I think I messaged a friend of mine and said, oh my God, there's a poetry book next to the cash register. So it's kind of like, it's having this strange moment. That's, that's one thing. The other thing that I have in mind on that before I get distracted is I have in my head this listener, a youngish poet under 30 who's writing towards a manuscript and has this story in their head, I have to have a book before I'm 30. What can we say to that poet? Up to 35. I'm okay with first book 35. Um, I published my first book when I was uh, about 35. And I think that that's a good mature moment to do so. Agreed. And, and I know, and most of my women friends uh, published their first book, you know, between thirty three and thirty five. And yeah, give it a, um, add a couple of years to that. Yeah, and you know, uh, my my other dear friend uh, Elizabeth Jolly, you know, she tried really hard all of her life until she was about fifty four or something. And that was when her first book was published. And, you know, she she remains in the literary canon of, uh, of particularly of Australia uh, for what was, what, you know, she'd been working on for years, but the first book didn't come out until she was in her 50s. And I, I do like, you know, I think it's much better to take the long road uh, with writing mm. and therefore publishing rather than shining too too hard and and dropping you know out, off dropping out of the sky well and then another thing I was thinking about with the oversaturation the too many books thing and I'm interested to hear what you think about that in terms of whether it's poetry books as well as other books but my sense is you're a poet you push to get that book out before you're 30, you've done it, you have the launch, you sell 20, 30 books at the launch, then your book might end up in one or two bookshops if you're really lucky. But then you have this moment where you kind of realize like, oh, that, that was sort of it. And then I wonder what that does to the second books and third books, like, I feel like there is this sort of thing, it's a, a theory I have that like a lot of people get the first book out and then feel a sense of like, oh, it didn't, is that all there is? is, that all there is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I wonder like, do you think, do you think there's too many poetry books and do you think that oversaturation has that effect or is that just kind of a story I've made up there? I think it's a little bit of a story you made up there. Okay, good. Um, the, 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 the point with poetry is in many respects you're on your own. So you have to be the one. You don't have to be, um, you know, a, a spectacular show-off, but you do have to have books in your bag. Yes. It is very much a hand-to-hand -hand, uh, business, the business of, of poetry readers, poets, you know, kind of circulating their work. And I, I actually don't think, you know, it's it's completely opposite to what publishing kind of um, uh, claims, you know, that 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 
bookshops will take your book and it'll be circulated widely, even worldwidely. <clears throat> it'll be reviewed everywhere. And, you know, you might end up on the telly. But with poetry, I think um, it's, again, this kind of slow movement of, I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything more um, uh, pleasurable than buying a book directly from a poet at a reading. That feels like something that is ancient. And to take out all of the expectations of ending up on television, um, because not very many people do, and often it, it doesn't really work out all that well. Yeah. Talk about poetry on in that mode. But to talk about poetry and then to read your poetry in a, whether it's a bar or a, a, a very boring university room that you're, you know, that the that the reading is happening in or or somewhere, you know, super cool. Uh, and to have people hear you and then talk to you and then potentially buy your book. I just think feel like that is a very different ecosystem to to the rest of publishing. Mm. So back to my my advice to to young poets, you know, number one, don't don't rush it. But number two, don't don't fret when you go into a bookshop and and your book's not there. And probably uh, this is from my own experience of being a bookseller a long time ago. Don't um, don't attack the bookseller for not having. <laughs> God, no! Don't do that, my God! Why would you do that? Well, a lot of people used to do it to me. Good and I Lord. Had, no, at, uh, so I mean, I'm uh, I'm not really trying to um, uh, to brag, but I had, aside from um, Chris Hemmingsley's uh, bookshop in the Nicholas Building and wherever yes. it went, I reckon I had the best in Perth, little old Perth, uh, in the in the eighties and nineties. I think I had the best poetry collection on my shelves. Um, it unfortunately, I think, probably all went to the tip when I sold or soon oh, after I sold the bookshop because the, you know, the the next round of, of people who ran the bookshop did not value poetry in the way that I did. And I found it um, a real asset to have books that I, that were original stock from 1982 when I opened my bookshop uh, and they saw it as being you know, um, um, worn stock. It, you know, it had taken me a great deal of effort to get those books because they were from very small uh, publishers in Australia, UK, US. And, uh, you know, I valued them. Um, I did bring some of them home when I sold the shop. Thank God. <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, you know, so so don't despair. This is a long, it's a long road, but it's a good road to be on. Let's change tack a bit and go to the other side of the equation. Upswell has a pretty specific submissions process, and I'd love for you to talk about how it works and why you set it up in the particular way that you have. By sheer, uh, in sheer desperation, because from day one, from the first day that I announced publicly that I was going to set this this venture up. 
I've been overwhelmed and inundated by people who, who want to submit a manuscript to me, either because they know me, I've published them before, they like the sound of the that blurb that you um, you described at the beginning of this interview, or because I was an I was the next um, email, and I you know I I am. I'm doing this on my own. I'm also doing it with my own um, money. And I was planning on doing four to ten books a year. I had no idea really before I started how this was going to work. But I thought that four to ten books would be a, a decent um, workload for me. Um, my first full year, last year, I published 18 books. This year, 17 books. Already? Next year, I'm only going to do 12. Well, you say that. <laughs> you say that well, now, Darianne. <laughs> there you go. Well, you sound like me. You sound like somebody who d makes resolutions about how they're not going to work and then works anyway. <laughs> well, you know, I, I am not a, a five-year plan kind of person. Mm. I feel like I've got, uh, you know, uh, it's not limited time. I'm, you know, I'm not going to drop off the perch tomorrow but I can't you know it, it's it's really hard work incredibly hard work and I wanted to make uh make a splash you know as soon as I could so that I could um feel that uh, a reputation for for upswell was built and um could be sustained and was fairly um robust i think that's happening for sure for yeah sure i see upswell books in the bookshops i go to all the time i see I've, lately i've been seeing admissions a lot which is great so th so that was that was my kind of intention that i that i try and make a mark quickly and it just blew out i would not have published 18 books last year unless i loved every one of the ones came to me so they came to me uh by sometimes people would just you know very boldly send me an email because my email address is on the website and say I wonder if you'd be interested others were um brokered by somebody I knew and who you know is a is a kind of big mentor figure in Australian writing Australian poetry who said, I've been working with this person and I would love to introduce you to them because uh, I think their manuscript is your kind of book. And it always was. Every single time it's been my kind of book. Mm. And so that, that, that I mean, at, at the end of 2021, I went to Geraldton to a writer's festival and driving home, and I got a, a speeding ticket, you know, for my for my efforts. Right, driving home, I thought, I this is going to kill me if I have to uh, manage just on my my laptop at home alone. This force of, you know, a manuscripts coming in every day, but I was just um, um, drowning. So I I decided that you know this this idea of the submissions. I was going to do it 
like an idiot uh, once a month. But after the second month, I it it had almost done me in. Three hours on a particular Friday, I think the third Friday in the month, I would be open in, in whatever time zone you were in for you to send me a manuscript, uh, not a manuscript, 15 pages sample from a manuscript, uh, a letter to me about why I should be interested, and then a, just a little bit of a, um, a track record of where you've been. And so last year I did. I only did it three times because, you know, I did it the first time in the middle of a heat wave and I worked all weekend and I got back to everybody by... Sunday night. But those three, it was 550 submissions came in. And so we're not talking about poetry only, but a lot of poetry came came in, in that year. This year, I thought I can't do that again. So I've had one, um, one pitch ses- session that happened about the end of March. And I had 147 came in on in those three hours. And um, the kind of remarkable thing, Alice, <laughs> is that I have already signed up five of those. You know, last year with the 550, I think there were two came out of that. But this time the quality was so rich and brilliant and there are, there are a number of manuscripts that I'm sorry to have to knock back. I'm still in the middle of all of that as well. But, you know, I I think of the 147, I requested four manuscripts of about 25. And so far there are five that uh, are already scheduled for next year. So in a sense that works really well. (laughs) Well, I think if people know there's the upswell pitch day, if we could call it that, is coming up. And so you work really, really hard on your pitch and you think about, what does Terry Ann want to see? You know, what do I need to say? It focuses it. I wonder how publishers who who sort of just have like a everything's open approach. I mean, I I guess I'd have to ask them, but yeah, I, I don't know how they manage that. I'd have to say they you. I don't think you're going to find very many who do. True, anymore. true. Yeah, probably no, not anymore. There are very few publishers who say, you know, come to me. Uh, <laughs> come to me. <laughs> sometimes I'd I'd say if they do say come to me, you know, have a look at the T and Cs. Uh, have a look at the T and Cs. Have a look at the things like the paper stock and the. Do you like the covers? Like, yeah. What's what's yeah? I feel like there's probably so, a catch there. What's it going to cost me? Because what's going to cost you? It's probably going to cost you some money. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, I was a publisher for for nearly fifteen years at. UWA publishing, and so I've got relationships with uh, with authors who want to stay with me, um, and so you know there there is always the requirement to keep some space for for people who you've worked with, because as I as I said at the Queensland Poetry, um, uh, not Queen, at the Queensland Brisbane Writers Festival this weekend, I we you uh, kind of. You, you know, the relationship between publisher and author is a very delicate and uh, delicate one based on trust um, and usually love. 
and you know so i i i become very close to nearly all of the authors that i work with and not in a creepy way but in a in an absolutely you know trustworthy respectful and um you know uh, something that is filled with admiration and um and understanding of of what it takes to to write a manuscript I guess because I've also done that myself, you know. I I've had a previous life as a as a writer. Yeah, I had I heard you talking about that on the Garrett, and one of the things you spoke about that was moving and maybe a little bit scary was you were talking about the sacrifices that writers have to make to bring a book together. I think that probably goes more for if you're writing a nonfiction or a, a fiction book. Then it might go for for poetry, maybe, maybe no. not. You don't look convinced by that. No, I, you know, I've, I, I think the precarity of of writing as a poet uh, is as powerful uh, as any of the other sacrifice, you mm. know, because you feel. Um, well, this is just my observation. I'm not a poet, but poets do feel very marginalised and also often feel voiceless yeah and it's I really do appreciate what you're saying earlier about don't despair (laughs) because it does take a level of resilience I think that um just because the time spans are so long and the audiences are small there are a lot of poets working in Australia too I mean how many what's your ballpark figure if you had to pull one out of the air I, I reckon it's like 400 500 like I think it's 600 600? Okay. <laughs> Sold. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is plenty, right? Like that's that's plenty of competition. It was gorgeous being at Brisbane Writers' Festival with, you know, quite a strong focus on poetry, but not marginalised out into, you know, some back corner. I went yesterday morning to a reading uh, with six poets and it was just superb. Oh, that's um, great. That was all it was, you know. It was just six poets getting up and reading for, I guess, you know, seven to ten minutes each, uh, and deeply pleasurable. And you know, I there were new disco- there were discoveries for me. You know, I knew I knew one of the poets. Uh, I knew his work very well because I published it, um, but the others, you know, less so. And you know, I came home with whole bunch of new books. Just on that, you know, the admissions um, anthology that you just mentioned uh, was one of the best-selling books in the the Brisbane Writers' Festival bookshop. And there was one specific, you know, dedicated session to the book with four of the contributors uh, reading their work and talking about about what it might mean to have a themed um, and focused anthology such as admissions that you know I feel deeply proud to be the publisher of. I'm thinking about like another sort of tension which is on the on one side you've got the poet who's like it's the upswell pitch day I really I want to put my manuscript in I want to make a really good pitch and get over the line and and their kind of concerns and that's kind of the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is to sort of try to 
get people to understand the publisher's perspective and the pressures that are on people like yourself. So you're supporting writers. You were saying you have this close relationship with writers. I imagine there are tricky situations, big egos. I would just have to hazard a guess. Um, you know, minor disasters. My question here is who's supporting you? The work supports me enormously. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I get, I get great kind of satisfaction from uh, handling these manuscripts that then become books. Mm. So, and there, there is so much joy involved, you know, despite the big egos or people who feel very unhappy with me because I, I've, I said no. Um, what I do is always explain what no means, that it's, it's my limitation you know, of either resources or whatever. I used to get about 700 submissions from when I was at UWAP every year. So that would sink me most times. It would, I'd feel completely overwhelmed. So at least now I've got some kind of barriers around what's coming in. And what I do in these pitch sessions, and I've had, I feel okay about telling you this because I've had so much feedback. I acknowledge the pitch when it comes in and say, I'm endeavouring to get back to you by the end of this weekend with either a simple yes or a no. Thanks for submitting. And then when I go through them and have a yes and a no pile, I, um, I send the message to the yes people to say, please send me, you know, I'm really interested in your manuscript. I usually don't say much more than that. Can you please send me the full manuscript? And I will have eight weeks before I come back to you with a yes or a no. And for the people I say no to, I, I write something that is actually, you know, if there's no simple yes or no, it's kind of insane that I said that in the first instance because I always I write kind of about, you know, at almost three quarters of a an, a an email page back. And some of it is kind of standard um, uh, writing that is just acknowledging the work that they've, they've done to date and acknowledging that I can't take everything on, but admiring what they've done. And at each of those stages, the feedback that I get from people who, who say to me, I have never had a single acknowledgement that I've made, made a submission, number one. I have never, you know, I'm sorry that you've said no, but it's the best rejection I've ever had. Yeah. Because it paid some attention to to what the what the labour of making making an imaginative, a work of imagination uh, uh, takes. And so, look, the big egos, yeah, um, of course I've had some of them. And uh, there's a sense, sense of entitlement that drives a lot of the things that I get. You know, people in uh, just have had a big reputation a long time ago 
and they do, they can't see why it's no longer there. Uh, you know, often their work has just stayed in a holding pattern. Uh, that's that's a very kind of bold thing for me to say. Oh no, but I mean that's that's I couldn't like. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I think that's really important if you're happy to keep that in because that's like it's an unacknowledged but huge thing that there are there are poets writers who had a moment you know they had that shining moment but then they didn't evolve what you're describing here is such a human process and i just hope that you really do feel appreciated for it because i know for me the one time i got a form rejection that had a handwritten very sorry <laughs> i think it was me engine i can't really remember but it meant so much to me it meant, it just those two words you know just like the fact that there was somebody there who had read it i what i really love doing is you know when i go to things like writers festivals uh when people come up to me and they're okay saying you know you 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 said no to me but um you know, I I really like what you're doing. I think that's gutsy. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Cool move. Yeah, because like you say, it's you're one person. You're you're a single person operation. <laughs> you're already publishing more books than you know you should, <laughs> given your human energy. So like, yeah, there's yeah, it's really amazing. But um, you know, my list so far just makes me so happy and you know the, the the other thing about it there are about 30 there are 32 books out there already in my first 20 months um and more than half of them are first books and one of them today um scott patrick mitchell's clean oh i'm glad you brought that up has been shortlisted in the uh, west australian premieres Book Awards Best Book of the Year. Oh, great! And, you know, we we could not be happier uh, because it's a very big deal uh, for a first book. And Scott Patrick should have should have uh, had a book out before now, but Clean is here now, and it's been out now for since you know early last year. Mm. And it's and it's it's been really well received. And it's just superb, but you know that it was shortlisted as well for the Victorian premieres, and uh, yeah, I couldn't be happier. God, that's but impressive. First books, first, book, first books really make a difference uh, for me. They make they make the whole venture much more important. Last question, slightly different angle. Something you've talked about elsewhere is the distance that you feel you were just talking about the hell of domestic travel from Perth. What could people such as myself, us fancy pants over East, what can we do differently to bridge the divide to make it easier? Um, precisely what you've done today to, you know, inclusive inclusivity. Great. But, um, you know, in lots of ways, uh, Western Australia is a very uh, unusual, um, you know, other side of of uh, the continent, and we often do it to ourselves. 
you know, we we build very strong chips on our shoulders about being outside of where the real uh, where the real work happens. Back in 1975, uh, Fremantle Arts Centre Press got started precisely because a lot of West Australian writers couldn't couldn't get a leg leg in to the uh, to the publishing industry in Australia, and it's um, it really served its um, purpose extraordinarily well for the first you know twenty five or thirty years of its operation because it it grew up a whole lot of writers that um, nobody had ever heard of before and often had never been published before, mm-hmm. you know, such as Marianne Campbell and uh, Joan London, Gail Jones, John Kinsella, Tracy Ryan, you know, I, I could go on. I mean, I don't need to go on because... Yep, yep. You know, they are the the kind of significant um, writers from this place. And I'm sorry I haven't said more poets, but, but you know, just you can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, it, it was so profound for the, the all of that kind of production to be located here. And I feel like that's what I'm uh, building on here even though I've got no interest whatsoever in having a you know WA only um venture because I don't I don't see the world that way Hmm. and I think we're past needing to have those barriers around around ventures such as publishing houses Hmm. so um what I don't know I I it's really hard to answer your question I, I I have a lot of possibly cynicism about how, um, for instance, you know, all of those platforms that are, that are, are worked these days for writers to um, be noticed, writers' festivals, in you know, in in particular, um, writers' festivals are really really hard for when when East Coast writers' festivals have to factor in um, an airfare from Perth. Mm. And that's the main. That's one of the main reasons that um, WA writers don't get invited. We need we need subsidies for <laughs> flights for West Australian writers. That's what that that'll solve it. You know, I, there's this kind of cute cute thing that um, I don't know why I'm telling you, but uh, back in the 80s and 90s. The Adelaide Writers Week, which was at the time, you know, well, you know, it 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 was an early um, kind of innovator, but they had one blind spot, I think, in that they only ever had a WA Writers Panel, so they they put everybody on the one panel because they didn't want to take up too much space. So, you know, uh, and Tim Winton would always say no, but. Um, they'd have Elizabeth Jolly and Joan London and Philip Salem and, you know, and it would be, okay, we're going to have the West Australians, but we're not going to have them scattered across our program. so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Very weird. These are the West Australians. <laughs> you know, don't, they bite, so don't go too close. <laughs> Thank you.
Hope you enjoyed that. Zoom connection was a little sketchy on that one. I have a fantasy of getting money next year to go over to Perth and get in a room with Terry Ann, Tracy Ryan, Lucy Dugan, whoever else will talk to me and um, have a conversation in person. I really do need to get over to Perth. It's starting to feel like it is quite seriously overdue. So I really, I really need to sit down and look at that. I thought I would just come back here at the end to that comment of Terry Ann's about thinking about this as a long-term prospect. You know, I never know how these episodes are going to land with people. I never know how what the guest says is going to land. And it always surprises me when I hear from listeners when they strongly disagree with something. It's often not the thing that I thought was going to rile people. It's something completely different. I don't expect that particular comment to to rile anyone, but I wonder if you are that younger poet listening, someone who's under 30 with that manuscript, I wonder how being told to slow down feels. Because I suspect, you know, if, if you're somebody like I was in 2015 when I knew everything, being told to slow down, you're like, yeah, 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 other people could slow down. I need to keep going. I, I've got to I've got to do this. I'm already late and there's no time. It's not that I want to tell you that there is more time than you think, although that is true. Uh, I don't think that if somebody had said that to me, I would have believed them or it would have made any difference. I suppose what I would say is like, the thing that takes the time that I am still learning is to trust your gut or to be even able to hear what it is that you actually want And that's why it's worth going slow because when you are making decisions that are urgent, that are based on a sense of urgency of like, I've got to get this done because reasons, because my best friend has a book, because my ex has a book, because uh, the submissions window is open. When you make decisions based on that kind of thinking, you're ignoring or there's no time to hear what it is that you actually want and what it is that's actually important to you and I've been kind of having this conversation with people off mic just about this show and what it is that I want and what it is that I want to do and I've also been told uh, very kindly very gently that I'm doing too much and that I'm going too fast. And that's probably true. I still don't want to slow down. <laughs> it's, uh, it's this deal I have with the devil where it's like, as long as I keep moving, then the demon dogs are not going to plague me quite so much. That's, that's my particular little contract that I have. But you shouldn't sign that contract. You should sign that contract. I have been 
I'm trying to have it both ways because I'm always trying to have it both ways. I'm trying to continue to make the show and also find ways to be slow with it to get a read on what it is that actually excites me. I guess the other thing though is like it's not it's not the worst thing in the world if you put out a book that in a year or three years you look back on and go oh that's not me why did I do that I suppose that yeah the the other thing that I've kind of noticed is like the people who I look up to as poets in Australia I'll never be able to read all their books I mean half of them are out of print for starters but also even if I could dig them all out of the library like there's just there's like 30 of them so they just kept moving so maybe I'm contradicting myself here (laughs) ah classic yeah back to um Alice at 33 a convincing case a fairly convincing case that the Australian poetry scene is overgrown and in need of some ruthless weeding and pruning. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm too old now to be young and stupid. I'm definitely not old enough to be wise. Definitely not. 